Hello, everybody. It is a good day to be bringing some coffee into a little chat. So for those of you watching live, for those of you who are watching this replayed with a podcast or on the YouTube channel, hello. I hope that you're brewing something tasty as we sit and we have a fun chat about coffee. So today's topic is going to be essentially demystifying the process from bean all the way to the cup. Now, a lot of people you know, might know some parts of this. They may know some of the elements. They may know some of the steps. But as far as kind of a complete picture, there's not really any good summary out there that I kind of know of. I will go ahead and recommend, and I'll put in the show notes or in the caption below, um, some blogs that I enjoy reading from Red Fox. Red Fox is an importer that uh, does a really good job with being transparent about everything and creates a blog that does, uh, I think, is really well written. Um, but I'll, I'll put that down below for people who want to dive in more deeply. But in today's video, we're going to kind of cover just the beginnings of how coffee starts, how it's planted, how it's grown, then all the way from that to picking to uh, the harvesting to the processing, milling, exporting, importing, all the way to the roasters. We'll talk about certain uh, terms that uh, are used and thrown around like Farmgate, FOB, um, EXW, these different acronyms and different terms that uh, might be a little bit Difficult to understand if you don't under, if you don't already know what they mean. We'll talk about coffee pricing, sea price, fair trade, all these different things in today's um, rant, essentially. So I just brewed up a cup of cup. Of, I just brewed up a cup of coffee, and I'm gonna pour the cup, take a little sip, and we'll we'll get going. I hope wherever you are in the world that you are maybe enjoying some coffee. Maybe you're waking up. Maybe on you know, in a meeting, slacking off at work, listening in an earbud. I don't know what you're doing. Mm. That's really nice. <clears throat> okay. So let's go ahead and just jump straight in. At the very beginning, there was a seed and the seed was planted in some soil and the seed began to sprout to produce coffee cherries. Now, what a lot of people don't know is most, most coffee varieties, they take between two and four years before they begin to produce fruit, to produce to, to be fruit-bearing trees that are capable of making the seeds to roast and to make coffee. So whenever a producer is starting out on a farm, it takes, or, or planting a new variety, planting a new species, whatever it might be, it, it takes two to four years before it really begins to, to show up. And some, it may take five or six, depending on if they're unhappy with the, some of the early iterations of what is growing out of these coffee trees. So yes, coffee is grown as it essentially, it looks like a cherry. If you're unfamiliar, it looks like a cherry. And on the inside, you have two beans that are kind of hugging each other. On occasion, you'll have mutations where there may be just one inside and that's called pea berry, or they could have three. I've actually, um, when I was at the farms, I've squeezed some and three three seeds came out. You also have different mutations that can have more seeds. Different, uh, different varieties have been created based off mutations. There's one that actually the seeds look like an apple. They have little slices of seeds. It's There's a lot of crazy things that can go on, but most traditionally, it's two seeds kind of hugging each other inside of a cherry, what looks like a cherry. They're typically red. You can have different, uh, different, again, mutations where some are pink. You've heard pink bourbon or orange bourbon or things like that. Um, you have uh, different like yellow catwai, things like this, right? So you have different colored cherries that can come out, but what you're likely to see are red ones. So red is when they're typically uh, ripe, when they have a really nice certain color red, depending on your region, depending on the variety. Um, oftentimes pickers are trained on what is the optimal color for ripeness for them to pick. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So this coffee, 
It's planted over years, it's grown. And now obviously uh, there are gonna be just like in every type of agricultural product, there are different varieties and strains that are more resistant to certain types of weather. There are some that are easier to grow and to deal with that you don't really need to essentially care as much about the soil. You should always care about your soil. Obviously it'll make better things, but there are some that are, are, are a bit more robust than others. So depending on what these producers are growing, there are certain amounts of effort and labor that needs to go into caring for these plants. Some plants tend to yield a lot more cherries than others. Um, and actually, I need to pause for a second to turn off my uh, dehumidifier because it's making noises that I don't like. And I apologize for the audio leading up to this point. Power off. And there we go. Okay. So, sip of coffee. Very nice. That is really nice. Okay. So where were we at? Coffee cherries production. Yeah, so some of these produce a ton of cherries for the same amount of labor as some other ones producing a lot less. So you might have two different varieties on a farm and to, to harvest a full hectare of one variety versus a full hectare of this other variety, you can have the same amount of labor for both and one is going to be a lot more fruitful than the other, right? So all these varieties, they're all, they just all have completely different growing patterns. They have completely different um, fruit patterns when they bear their fruits, etc. Now, while they're growing, they do blossom first. So this is what's called a coffee blossom. And you might see this as a taste note sometimes, which is a really obscure taste note, because unless you've been at a farm, you're not going to know what that smells or tastes like. So anyway... But they have these beautiful little white flowers that, you know, tend to tend to come out as coffee blossoms uh, before they actually produce their cherries. And so as we're going through this life cycle of the plant, you have, you know, they grow up as little shrubs and they keep growing. And, and you have you have some plants at some farms that are 50 years old, something like that. Um, so some of them can last a really long time. They, uh, some get really, really tall. Some get really wide. Some have, you know, arms that point up at like really tight angles. Some that come out more at like right angles. Um, that, that just a plethora of different varieties is essentially what we're getting at. Now, once these are at uh, full fruition, the right, they're ready to be picked. What you have are people are going through and they're literally hand picking the ripest cherries. Now, this isn't the same case for all farms. Sometimes depending on like, for instance, the commodity price of coffee, that's what Wall Street is selling coffee at was really high last year. Uh, like really, really high. And so oftentimes farms, uh, some farms were seeing that the price was really high and they wanted to take to savor the moment. You can't blame them. And they'd go out and just pick all the cherries, even if they weren't ripe in order to maximize uh, the time, the zeitgeist, the amount of money that C uh, commodity was paying. And so but at some of these more specialty farms, uh, the ones where they're going for much higher scored coffees, which isn't to say that people not doing that are any any worse or inferior. But uh, what they'll do is they'll choose the ripest and they'll do a second pick, maybe a third harvest um, in order to get all these different cherries growing at different times at their peak ripeness. OK, now, of course, you have places like Brazil and other areas where they'll use manufacture, they'll use like machines in order to uh, take the harvest. And so that obviously they're not caring about rightness. They're just taking them all, defects and all, right? But when you have skilled pickers that are going through and they are choosing which cherries to take off, you're obviously getting a much higher quality product in the end result. So you'll see these pickers going around and they are looking at the trees and they're picking them one by one and putting them in these barrels. Uh, these like, um, it depends on where you're at, obviously what they use, but they'll put them in sacks, they'll put them in whatever uh, to bring back for the processing. 
Okay, so we have hit kind of the seed in the ground growing up, how long it takes to kind of get to where it's full maturity. But there's obviously I'm, I'm putting into your mind the fact that there is a multiplicity of different amounts of labor that goes into the different varieties, which is why some varieties may cost more than others um, based off of the production of the plant um, and, and based off of the amount of uh, tedious effort that goes into maintaining that plant. Uh, some of them are more um, susceptible to like leaf rust or fungi growth or something along those lines. So it's always important to recognize that there may be massive differences in coffee costs, and this is something you need to take into account, as well as a plethora of other things we're about to discuss. Sip for coffee. Delicious. Okay. So once these pickers um, have picked all these coffees, now we're kind of ready to begin uh, processing, which is the next kind of big stage. I know I blew past picking, but in reality, uh, it's a, it's one of the most tedious jobs on the farm, very underappreciated in the sense that whenever we're thinking about buying coffee, we, we, we focus so much on producer, we forget that the producer is not the only one at the farm. It, it takes a village in order to create your cup of coffee. All right. It takes a ton of seeds that are handpicked every time you brew a cup of coffee and you weigh out your beans, uh, especially if you're drinking higher quality coffee, likely each each one of those beans was one of two inside of a cherry that was handpicked by someone. OK, when you drink a cup of coffee, it has gone through so many hands that we need to be appreciative of that as we're sipping our coffee. When you sit there and you take a sip, be thankful for all of these different hands that it has passed through in order to end up in your cup. I think it's very important for us to be as mindful of this whole process as possible. And honestly, I think this will motivate us to be a bit more particular in how we're purchasing, purchasing our coffees. But again, we're getting to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. OK. Hmm. Great. All right. So then we get to what's called processing. This is essentially how we're going to give uh, a, a, the majority of the flavor to the coffee. So there was a research paper that came out about five years ago that argues about 60% of the taste that is attributed to coffee comes out during the um, the, the fermentation process or the processing. So, and, and we know this to be true, especially within the last couple of years, logically, by looking at the insane amount of leaps and bounds that processing has taken when you look at people like Diego Bermudez, Nestor Lasso, and pe people like that who are really Really changing the game on how things are being processed, bringing up bringing up these flavors that have never been tasted in coffee before. So, processing is that fermentation where we're getting all these intriguing flavors in the coffee. All right, so processing can be in a, a slew of different uh, varieties, but to go over the main, the kind of traditional ones that uh, you should know, because there's now dozens and dozens and dozens, and we're not going to go over all of them. But the three kind of staple ones that everyone should kind of know are washed honey and natural. Those are kind of the traditional ones that have been practiced for ages and ages and ages. So washed is uh, what is kind of seen as the cleanest, quote unquote, uh, cup of coffee. This is where you're really controlling the process. You are taking your cherries, and you're doing what's called depulping it. So sometimes you have a manual depulper where you're kind of rotating like this, or you have a mechanic depulper that's doing it automatically. But essentially, it has these rollers. You put the cherry through it, and it squeezes it and shoots out the seeds. All right. So once it shoots out the seeds from inside this cherry flesh, it is coated in a mucous membrane. All right. So it, the, you depulp it, and it kind of sits in a tiled tub. Oftentimes, it's in a tiled tub that's outdoors, and it sits there, and it ferments for 
24 hours, 48 hours, whatever it is. So it's sitting there depulped in this tile tub and it's just sitting there and, and you know, it's turning into what it's turning into, right? Uh, so we have all these different types of fermentations going on based off the bacterial growth, based off of where it is in that tub, the lower it is, the less oxygen, the higher it is, the more oxygen that is hitting it. So you're having this stratified, um, uh, this, this stratification of bacterial growth that is causing different types of fermentation. Of course, over time, we have now manipulated this and we have introduced yeast strains and all this different stuff in order to control exactly what type of fermentation is going on. But traditionally, you just kind of let it be the Wild West, right? Then after a certain amount of fermentation time, depending on the processing, uh, the, depending on the mill, just so you know, a quick aside, producers largely do not own their own mill. They will grow their coffee and they'll cater it oftentimes, uh, you know, letting a mule cater it on, on a cart or something like that to uh, oftentimes like a local mill that a lot of producers will use. So the mill is where the processing kind of goes on. So it's, it's actually very rare when you think about it that a, a producer will have their own uh, mill, milling station. That is very rare. And, and typically it's only people who have quite a bit of funds that are able to do that or people who are doing all this experimentation on their own. So the majority of coffee in the world is taken outside of the farm. Uh, sometimes it's gathered with other farms, like in Africa, you have lots of little farms that are putting all of their coffees together and then it goes all together as one big lot. So that's why you see with Kenya coffees, it'll say SL28, SL34, Rui Ru, Bation, all of these things. It's because you have a lot of uh, farmers, little small uh, farms that are putting their coffees together. It's one big blend, right? So you have these uh, milling stations, and that's what we often refer to when we're talking about African coffees or the milling station. We don't really talk about the farms because you, you oftentimes aren't getting a single farm coffee. It's multiple farms, a single mill. Okay. All right. So when it's at this mill with the washing, you're sitting there and you, you have it fermenting in this tall tub, and then it goes through these channels where you're washing it repeatedly in order to get all of the mucus off, everything else off. They tip, A lot of times they're using sticks to push it through because it kind of turns into like a honeycomb structure with all that mucus that is kind of like dried on it. So they're pushing it through and washing it off. Then when it's, um, then they let it dry and then you have essentially your washed coffee. Uh, of course, there are, there are different changes that have happened in this process over the years where people are controlling more and more of the washed process and they have different names for it as well. But just in a, in a nutshell, that is what we're talking about when we talk about washed. You depulp it, you let it ferment a bit and you wash it completely clean. Boom. Honey would be kind of like the next level of, um, I should have started with natural probably. Now I'm doing it in the opposite order. But anyway, honey process is where you are depulping the coffee and then you let it sit for a while in the sun and you're letting it you're letting it uh, be exposed to the sun in its mucilage layer, all right? So you have all this sticky honey coffee. It's turning into honeycomb out in the sun and it is fermenting with the uh, with the aid of the sun. When it's washed, ten, they tend to be um, roofs over their head but, uh, and, and they're, you know, in a confined area, et cetera. But this is letting it kind of dry out naturally like that without the cherry on the outside. So once it's fully dried out, you know, they break it apart, yada, 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 clean it up, and then you, go, you do milling. 
Then with natural process, this, you aren't depulping at all. You are just taking the coffee in its full cherry and you're just tossing it out in the sun. Now I'm, I'm acting like it's haphazard. You have different ways of doing this. In Africa, they're they're known for doing what are called dry, dry raised beds. So they'll put it on these raised beds in order to have sort of like an airflow going around those cherries. Or, uh, you know, oftentimes in South and Central America, you have them putting it onto a concrete patio and they'll rake it every so often in order to allow that kind of fermentation to occur as as, as evenly as possible as that uh, fruit is decaying, right? Obviously, that's what's happening. The fruit like, is decaying in that sun. It's it's becoming all you know, shriveled up and dried, etc. So these are kind of the three tr more traditional ways of processing coffees. But of course, there are loads of different different styles now where they're taking sealed vats and they're putting coffee in there to deprive it of all oxygen. They're adding different yeast strains to it, uh, just like they do with beer um, and, 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 and with wine in order to control certain parts of it to give the reactions they want bacterially to the coffee to affect certain changes on the taste profile by the end of it. Okay, so lots is go lots and lots and lots goes on at that level of processing. So we have uh, just a ton going on. Then, of course, you have milling. Whenever you're done with your processing, that coffee seed, it's not just the seed that's going through all this. It has kind of a hard shell around it. Uh, well, it hardens. It doesn't start off hard, but it has a kind of a hard shell around it that needs to be milled off in order to get to the green seed itself. So when you're looking at it, if you Google a cross section of a cherry, coffee cherry, you'll see that. Uh, that skin that is around the seed. And this is what needs to be milled off. So it kind of cracks off, like, not like a pistachio, but you know, it has kind of like that skin that you need to mill off of it. Then once you have that, you're, you kind of have your green coffee. Now, this isn't to forget that we also have people that are picking, hand picking and sorting the coffees. So especially when we're talking specialty coffee, there are certain... Um, requirements in order to hit certain scores, green coffee scores, which hopefully in the future I'll have Christopher on here who does a lot of um, a lot of scoring, but he's very, very knowledgeable on all of this and uh, is constantly scoring coffees. And I would love to to do a little video or, or, or podcast or something with him to talk more in depth on some of these, but sip of coffee. Um, but yeah, so they're sitting there and sorting to get rid of defects or get rid of ones that are off-colored because obviously being an agricultural product, all of these seeds are going to be completely different. And so you're trying to take out the most anomalous ones that could affect the taste of the coffee. So ones that might be blackened or ones that might be chipped or ones that might have some sort of, I don't know, just some, something that's off, right? So you have people that are sitting there and they're picking and picking and picking and picking seed by seed by seed by seed. And the higher quality coffee you're going, the more likely this has happened to your cup. So when you're sitting there drinking your coffee, I'm drinking a Tim Wendelboe, so I guarantee this was all hand sorted, hand picked. I'm sitting here and it's been it's been in the hands of a picker. It's been in the hands of a sorter. It's been processed in, in very intensely where they are measuring the moisture content. They're measuring the pH balance. They're measuring all of these different things in order to ensure that what needs to go on for their process is going on. Of course, again, this is all going to be, this is a very broad introduction to all this. So it's going to be very different all around the world. This is kind of a broad generalized kind of presentation. And I'll be skewed towards more practices in South and Central America because those are the farms I've visited. I've not been to farms anywhere else around the world. So I'm definitely skewed to how it's practiced there. But um, when I know differences, I will bring that up. Anyway, another sip of coffee. Sorry for the slurps. Um, so we have um, 
Yeah, so we're not even we're not even to exporting yet. We still we've talked about planting it. We we have uh, the need for soil and compost and, and maintaining the structure of that plant. You have some farmers that will uh, measure the soil around their farm in order to see what minerals are lacking and in order to improve that. Instead of using man-made materials to improve like the nitrogen content, they'll cut down a branch of a tree in order to let that decompose and rot and 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 give back to the to the ground in that way. So you, you need to really make sure that all these things are going in the way to produce the best coffee possible. Of course, we don't want to be skewed into thinking that every farm is going to be like Pepe Gijon's farm. That's not reality. Every farm is going to be like La Palma Il Tucan. That's not reality. In fact, that is the absolute tiniest minority. That is anomalous where people have probes all over their farm and they're checking the soil content. That's just not possible for everyone to do. You also have people that are coming... Um, who are new in farming and they have to grow all their own on their, uh, on their own, or they have a family farm that they've used and they're going from commodity to specialty and it's a lot harder process. And so what we have right now, a big issue that I was going to save till later, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about now. A big issue is we have a huge underappreciation for lower scoring specialty coffees. So often we have people that are only buy 86, 87, 88, 89 scored coffees. For those unfamiliar, coffee is scored from zero to 100. Uh, 80 and above is considered specialty. But in kind of the top tier roasteries, they're only really serving 86, 87 and above. And so you see a massive price drop once you get below 86. And so what, what you actually have is a lot of people will buy these lower scoring coffees. They'll fill their blends with those because they're like, oh, it's the blend. We can use cheaper coffees there. That's the majority of what they end up selling. And then they pay premiums on the single origins that a lot of us enthusiasts are buying. So they're wholesaling really cheap coffees or they're doing the blends really cheap coffees. And then the minority of what they buy is the expensive stuff. And we're like, oh, wow, they paid $8 a pound for that. That's fantastic. So that's something to kind of be aware of is oftentimes you have said oftentimes like 47 times in this video, don't play a drinking game with that term because you will lose. But I'll sip every time I say it, I guess. Okay. So where was I? Yes. So, uh, uh, um, so it's difficult. You can't you can't look at two different farms and see it's the same coffee coming out from both, and you have two different prices. Uh, and you may say, well, this one's higher quality on the right. So there's two farms, one on the left, one on the right. One on the right is higher quality, and it's the six dollars a pound green. Uh, the one on the left is not as good, but it's seven dollars a pound green. Well, I'm going to take the six dollars a pound because it's cheaper. That's not the best way to think about it because the one on the left, who has maybe a little inferior qualitatively to you. Um, it, it might be more expensive, but they may have higher costs because they may not have uh, the same resources. They may have, um, they may be paying more to their, you know, employees on the farm, the, the pickers and all these other different people. They might have, uh, they just might have less resources in general. There's so many resources to take into account on the farm level. It's hard to go over all of them. Uh, and my laptop is dying. So let me plug this in before we lose power. So. I mean, we're just, we're by our bootstraps here. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just, just going dead laptop. I don't care. All right. Plugged in and we got power. There we go. Okay. And you know what? I think my phone, no, we're good. We got 16% on the phone so I can see comments here in a bit. Um, okay. So one more set. And I'll look at comments to those in the live chat here in a second. I'm just like, we're just mowing through this right now. Um, okay. So, um, 
Yeah, so so the cost of coffee, it's not it's not cut and dry. It's not that easy to kind of understand to say, well, I like this better. It should be it should be more expensive than that one. Uh, maybe maybe not. Anyway, we got through all of that. All right, so now let's go ahead and skip to. Um, uh, yeah, so then this isn't the end of the road. It's not just boom, we export it and we're good to go. Then the once the coffee's all done and it goes and it needs to be sat somewhere. For the, for the majority of the world. The conditions of the farm and where it's processed are not the best conditions to store the coffee once it's all done, okay? This is a huge thing that people don't consider. There is more money that is taken into account for it to be stored somewhere uh, in an area where the humidity might be a bit more controlled so that the quality isn't changing. Uh, as they're sitting in their cupping, the, these producers and their team, they're cupping. Maybe it's an association. It's very common to have an association of people uh, that come together and they'll cup the coffees of the area, whatever it might be. They have to store this coffee as uh, as they're cupping it. And then once they're satisfied, maybe they make a deal with someone, then it needs to go sit somewhere else. So like in Peru, for instance, they'll ship it to a specific city, uh, oftentimes, and I gotta take a sip, I said oftentimes, they'll ship it to a specific city after everything's done because it has a better climate there and is much drier, right? So the humidity and as it's sitting and waiting, uh, this can all affect the quality of the coffee greatly. You go down, you think it's as easy as I cup it. This is great. I want that coffee. And then it arrives and it doesn't taste the same. Well, it's because what happens from that cup that you tried to when it arrives at your roastery or the importer and then to your roastery, there is so much that can go wrong there. So we're not done at how much work goes on in this. Then we have the exporting. Okay. So sometimes exporting can be done by producers. That's not as common, though it is great when that happens to give a little bit more power there. But you have exporting companies. Uh, you also have sometimes uh, roasters and importers will have the will have um, contracts where they can export out of certain countries. And uh, so um, there are a lot of different hands at play here. But a lot of times it, it, it's it's great whenever producers are able to do this. And I hope in the future more and more are able to do this because that's more money that can be made for them. So I'm going to stop right now and we're going to talk about pricing because uh, we're about to get into the export import and, and all that stuff. So as we're getting here, let's talk about these terms that might be really confusing. I just got in some coffee from Ilsa um, out of the U.S. And on the back, they, they do price transparency. And this is really great. Uh, and is a step in the right direction. It's not the answer, but it's a step in the right direction. And I highly, I highly uh, encourage roasters all over to be as transparent as possible. But anyway, they have on the back of their bag the farm gate price, the FOB price, and our cost. So let's break that down. What what do those things mean? Farm gate price is the most important price on this bag. Farm gate is what is directly negotiated with the producer, him or herself. Okay. So whatever that cost is, like let's say I'm chatting with my friend, the producer, and whatever we agree on is what is going to the producer, all right? Now, that doesn't mean that's straight up profit for the producer, obviously. It's if I'm paying five a pound for uh, producer X's coffee, that doesn't mean he just pockets five bucks a pound for 800 pounds of coffee. No, he has his own uh, his own uh, costs, labor, uh, the transportation of the coffee, the time at the mill, the uh, all there's so many costs in there, the electricity, the whatever, all of these things need to be taken into account whenever you're looking at the price that is being paid to the producer. We don't actually know how well that producer is going because we don't know the cost of the producer 
per pound. Maybe the cost per pound for that producer was four fifty a pound, so they're making fifty cents a pound. That's okay, but it could be five ten a pound, and maybe they're losing out on it because a lot of producers don't have everything itemized in order to know how much it's cause it's charging them to create the coffee that is being required or requested of them by the importers and roasters. So Farmgate is the most important number because that is the most granular we can really get at current time at present to understand what is going directly to that farmer. So when you see Farmgate, that is literally what is going to farm, okay? That doesn't mean it's everything because we still have all the other prices that need to be taken into account, but that is what's going to the farmer is Farmgate. Sadly, oftentimes, golly, I keep saying that word. It's, it's the word of the day. Sip of coffee. People think FOB is the price that it needs to be discussed. But FOB is very misleading, very, very misleading. FOB, which is the second one on here, and it's good they list both Farmgate and FOB. That's very good. FOB is free on board, all right? That means it is the price once it's loaded on whatever container or ship or whatever, leaving the country of production, okay? So that includes the exporter cost. So the exporter can come in and cushion the price. Obviously, they need X amount per pound in order for them to handle exporting the coffee. So they're doing the movements of it on the truck, getting it out to the boat. They're doing the customs work in order to get it out of the country. And that is their price. So when you see FOB is, let's say someone says, um, we only buy FOB $8 and above which would be, a, that's a hefty price, but let's say eight, $8 a pound and above. That's all we do is FOB eight and above. Well, that's really cool, but you could have a skeevy, uh, um, a skeevy company that's doing like 480 a pound for their exporting. That I mean, that's likely not happening, but my point is you don't know if they're showing just FOB, you don't know it's going to the producer. All you know is FOB is in between producer and all of the costs that the producer has and then the exporting company and what their cost is right? So FOB is free on board. That's what that means. Another, and then of course, once you have it exported, um, which this is a lot of logistics go into this. So you need a roaster or an importer that is on top of it in order to maintain the quality of what they cut. There is the logistics of the shipping routes. So you can have um, transportation where it has to stop at ports and switch ships, or you can request for not that to where it'll directly come to where you're at. And that's a lot more expensive, obviously, and will increase that price. Um, and then, of course, you have transportation. You have to clear it through customs. You have to get it on a truck and you have to get it to wherever the warehouse is, whether you own the warehouse or you're renting the warehouse, a third party warehouse for flexibility. Those are all incurring their own costs as well. So the, the shipping lanes are very important to kind of watch over and make sure it's all clear as possible because it could be in a city where the humidity is awful or something. It could be where it's really hot, scorching. It could be sat uh, at the harbor for two months sometimes because customs doesn't want to clear it. So all of this, it, it, it you have to consider it as an importer or a roaster that's buying direct whenever you're importing your own coffee. So you have the exporters exported it. Most of the time it's a third party exporting company, uh, but you, sometimes producers can do it, which again is great because then they can set their price and they make that. Um, or importers might export it if they have the licensing in said country or roasters can do that too. They can get licensing in said countries. But you have all of that labor going on. And then when it gets to the U.S. or wherever destination country it is, then you have the importation. And that is, it's up to you to kind of follow the shipping lanes um, on the boat or however you're getting it done. If you're shipping it from a Mexican farm to the U.S., you might truck it over the border, whatever it is. You have to follow it the whole way so it doesn't get stuck in certain areas. You want to make sure that the routes are the shortest travel possible with the least amount of delays. 
you get what I'm trying to say. So then you have the XFWX uh, or XWF, the um, essentially the X warehouse price. So that's when it exits the warehouse in order to get to the roaster. So that's kind of like the price that the um, that the the importer is putting on top in order to get it imported and to store it at the warehouse. All that good stuff. So when we're looking at this bag from Ilsa where it says Farmgate FOB, then our cost, our cost is what Ilsa paid in order to get it grown, processed, milled, sorted, um, uh, uh, boxed up, whether it's, and this is something else is whenever they're trying to fight the climate, they'll, a lot of times we use Grain Pro, which is like kind of a green plastic they put around so the humidity doesn't go in, grow fungus, grow mold, whatever it is. Um, so you have uh, extra costs for that too. That's that I didn't mention earlier is how they seal the coffee or how they store it. Some people back seal it. That's very, very rare, but Grain Pro is very common, or they'll just put it in the burlap sack and that is going to, cause a lot of quality issues. Uh, it, it's more expensive though to grain pro it. So a lot of people don't do it anyway. So then you have it imported. And then once all those costs are taken into account, that's when you have our cost. So Ilsa's cost on this is that final one. That's what they actually opened their checkbook and that's what they wrote the check for. Now, if they just said, this is what we wrote the check for, you could say, wow, $6.85 a pound for this coffee, $6.85 a pound for the green. If we, they were just to show us their cost, we might think, wow, the farmer got $6.85 a pound because this is a direct coffee. It's direct trade, right? But in reality, the farmer got $4.25. That is $2.60 a pound less. That's a huge amount less. And unless they put that on here, we wouldn't know that. And we might think, wow, they paid six. They, the farmer got a lot for this. When in reality, it's a lot less than what, what we think. So there's... It's good whenever you're asking for transparency from your roasters, from importers, et cetera. If you're a if you're a um, a, 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 a roaster yourself that's doing direct trade, or or you're buying from importers, it's important to make sure you're asking the right questions. Uh, you know what is what if they give you the, the FOB is easy. That is an easy um, standard. It's because commodity price is shown as FOB. So when you see the commodity on Wall Street, that's FOB, right? Um, it's also what's on the bill of landing. Whenever you get your shipment in, it shows it on the bill of landing. So FOB is easy to standardize, but it's not, it, it doesn't translate to what the producer gets. It, it, we, there's not like a standard $1 a pound is what everyone always gets for exporting. That's not how it is. All of these ones have different amounts. You may want to use a certain exporting company because they're really good, really efficient. They may be more expensive. So maybe you spent $4.50 a pound on the coffee from the producer, but you spent $2 a pound or $3 a pound for that exporting company because it's going to give the highest quality. And the roaster or importer is okay with that heightened cost because it's going to be a higher quality once it arrives. Right. So these are things that we need to understand as we become more conscious consumers of coffee. Sip of coffee. OK, so we, we've done exporting. We've done the importing. We've talked about the warehouse storing. And then, of course, it's about getting to the roaster. Of course, if your roaster is importing directly, you're handling the importation. So you don't have to do the X warehouse cost. Um, you can you, you just. Yeah. So you have your own, whatever the costs are for you to ship it uh, and for you to handle all of those fees, you can add that as your own cost. So maybe that's what, um, maybe that's part of what our cost is on here. I'm not sure how they handle it. Uh, but whenever you're importing on your own as a roaster, you're going to have your own costs, obviously, from trucking it, getting it, uh, you know, the, the custom, there's, there's all these different prices that go into it. And again, logistics are boring, but they have a massive, 
massive effect on the quality of the coffee once it arrives. You could have a coffee that tastes like an 88. Once it arrives, it's an 85. If you were very lackadaisical about how it was going to be transported to you, the, the end user. Okay. So logistics, eh, boring. I don't want to talk about logistics. Very important though. Very, very important. Um, so anyway, uh, and that's not even to get into the talk about sustainability uh, on how we transport. There's, uh, you know, you have people who will uh, air freight coffee in order to get it as fresh as possible. And while I understand that from a qualitative perspective, the amount of weight, uh, the amount of fuel that's used to fly just to get coffee here faster is a bit irresponsible, in my opinion. Um, whereas you could use, you know, ships or something like that that are a lot less harmful uh, to the environment. But uh, there, there are lots of different ways, you know, and if you can get it on land, whatever it is, there are ways of doing it. But we're transporting an agricultural good from all around the world to these places where they can't grow the coffee. So there's going to be there is inherently it is wasteful and not sustainable. Coffee is very detrimental uh, environmentally, as are a lot of things that we indulge in, like cars. Right. So uh, we're not we won't get into all that, but that's just something important to kind of uh, remember when we're talking about all this, it is always better to work in towards more and more sustainable practices. Anyway, now we have the coffee um, with either the roaster or the importer. If it's with the importer, they are working on their X warehouse price, which is what you're buying it for. So they're adding their cost, their profit margin on top of that FOB essentially, right? So whatever their costs are in order to get it all imported in their warehouse and then whatever profit margin they deem is necessary to keep their business running, or you're just doing it as a roaster and then you're going to change your profit margin and likely not tell people what you're paying. So um, so then the roaster gets it, right? And it, it's likely very different than what they tasted at origin if they did indeed travel to origin to taste it there. Uh, a lot of times, uh, and this is why it's important to know that importers a lot of times are seen as evil middlemen. Uh, and oftentimes they are, oftentimes. Good grief. I'm a monster. I can't stop. Okay. Um, they are. A lot of times they are. And so you have some of these that are kind of price gouging. They don't want to share the price that they pay for coffee because sometimes they'll have, they'll pay, they'll go to a producer. They'll say, we want to buy all your coffee at $2.50 a pound, $2.50 a pound. Now this is a better price than you're going to get from anyone else. Uh, and you're guaranteed to sell all of it. And there's merit in that. There's merit in buying out all, all of a crop so that they can have a guaranteed sell. But then they turn around and sell it for six a pound, which is way more than covering their costs and giving them a huge profit margin. Right. And so Actually, years back, uh, when transparency started to be a thing in coffee, you would have uh, roasteries that bought from importers posting what they paid online. So they'll say, we bought this coffee from this importer at $6 a pound. Then producers who have access to internet, they see that and they go, that's my coffee. They bought that at $6 a pound. The importer said I wouldn't get more than $3 a pound. So they offered me $2.50 a pound. What the heck? Hey, importer, you screwed me. So it actually empowers producers. And this is why I'm a big fan of transparency is I do believe it can empower producers. And, and honestly, every producer that I've talked to, which I know I have a very skewed experience. I'm a very privileged person uh, and, and my experiences are very skewed, but I've never heard one say that it is not a good thing to have uh, transparency. At least it's that it's not a good step in the right direction. Um, definitely not in game, but it's definitely a step in the right direction to empower those who have the least power, uh, which sadly is one growing it. Um, so. You have, um, let's see, just taking a break because I'm trying to remember where I was going. We we're talking about importers. We we're talking about, we already talked about FOB, Farmgate. We talked about, um, we talked about, can't remember. Let's see. 
wow, I went blank. ADHD time, baby. I was on a roll and then we blanked. We're coming back though. We're coming back. I got to like keep processing guys. I'm talking. Yeah. So the roaster now has the coffee and this is when they begin doing the sample roasting. They're, they're testing it. They're dialing in their batch in order to make as representative as possible, the origin to the consumer. Okay. So there is a lot on the roaster's plate as well. They're trying to make uh, as good as possible a representation of what all of these different segments did in order to get the coffee to them. All right. So there's a there's actually a massive amount of uh, uh, work and pressure on the head of the roaster to not kind of screw it up. So it's very important for roasters to take their job very seriously because what they're doing is presenting a farm. They're presenting a conglomerate, a co-op, an association. They're presenting an origin, an area. They're representing all of these different things with their coffee. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's sad sometimes when people rush to do it because they want cheaper costs and it's cheaper to just buy coffee and roast it yourself. But you might not be reflecting the hard work that was all the way through that chain. Now, in recent times, there have been uh, people calling into question the term coffee chain. And, and while I agree with that, it's not the best word to use. Um, we're going to use that just for visual purposes because you can kind of see it starts here, it ends here, yada, yada. Um, but anyway, so that is kind of how the coffee gets here. And then we do a secondary uh, score, right? When importers are giving scores and roasters are giving scores to coffees, this is different than the original green score. When you do green scores, you're looking at defects. You're looking at, um, really, you're looking at loads, mostly defects and how the coffee is being uh, presented. When you're at, at, at the roasting, you're doing it based more so off of taste. So uh, you're not really doing as much defect cupping, though you will do it with roast defect cupping. Uh, and there could be defects that were missed because, uh, you know, defects are not super consistent sometimes throughout a whole lot or a micro lot, nano lot, whatever it is. Uh, and so you may have some defects in it as well. But you're cupping and you're scoring based off of that. And you have all these different cupping forms. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Cup of Excellence cupping form, the cupping forms for uh, SCA standards, protocols, yada, yada. Um, so... Uh, then you go through the cupping, and this is when you're giving that final score of when I say like, oh, I tasted this coffee, and for me, it tasted like an 87.5. These are largely arbitrary because it's very subjective. And even when you have the CQI, which is an institute that awards what are called Q-grader certificates, where they're attempting to um, make everyone standardized across the world, uh, it's still, I mean, taste is still incredibly subjective. And in fact, uh, Martin, Martin Munchau has shown that some of the tests on there are literally impossible, and it just takes guessing because what they're testing you is something that humans physically and chemically cannot detect. So it just takes some guesswork, but also some of the tests are quite easy, right? So it's, it's, it's a valiant effort to want to standardize taste across the world, but that's never truly going to happen because you have different from people, different cultures, people from different cultures, people from different backgrounds, different food experiences, and they're, they're just wired differently. You have people who absolutely love heavily vinegar foods, people who hate vinegar, right? So that right there is going to make the perception of coffee way different. There are lots of coffees I've tasted that have a heavy vinegar taste in it, and some people despise that just a priori. They don't like that. They're going to give that a low score because it's like almost effective for them and others will give it high. Right. So that's, it's a very difficult thing to try and calibrate across the world. And um, there are a lot of people pushing back actually on this idea of Q. And I just had a long call with someone who lives in Ecuador about this um, and about some other things. Um, but anyway, it, 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 what you have largely are people in these, um, um, I guess more, 
you essentially have one big voice that is kind of dictating the quality of the coffee. And it's not the producing countries that are dictating the quality. It's the, it's the buying countries. And I understand from an economics point of view, that's like, well, that makes sense. But, but also, you know, there's, there should still be a voice for those on the producing side and, and that's kind of getting squandered. But anyway, um, I think that is largely what I wanted to cover in this video today and this rant and this podcast, whatever, however you're tuning into this, um, was to get us to where we're at now, which is the roaster and how we're buying coffee. And so kind of my final thing before I read these questions, um, is we need to be mindful of the coffees that we're buying, the coffees that we're drinking. And I do believe, and I will say this, and I get criticism for this all the time because people want to think that the world uh, should work in a much more um, um, secretive way. And I, I don't think so, but I, I think we need to push for transparency from our roasters, from our importers. We need to understand a little bit more, a little bit better where that money is going less because we need to know and more because it'll keep people a bit more honest. Yes. We don't know exactly why, um, you as a consumer aren't going to understand that a coffee that scores an 88 in Colombia won't sell as high, as expensive as one from Ethiopia scoring 88. T typically, you have more expensive coffees coming out of Kenya and Ethiopia, but it's it's not because the quality is any different or anything like that. It's different processes going on in order to get that coffee. There are different fees that are worked into that. So you might see um, that in Ethiopia is eight a pound and the Colombia is 450 a pound and go, oh, they paid more for the Ethiopia. That was more ethically bought. That's not how it works. In fact, for the most part of 450 a pound Colombia, that is a really nice price for a lot of the, you know, 85 Colombias. That would be incredible if people would pay 450 a pound for an 85 scoring Colombia coffee. But um, in the end, you what you're not you're not going to really be able to understand these 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 costs because you don't know what the borderline is. You don't know what the baseline is, um, and you can't compare it to commodity. Hopefully, we're not comparing specialty commodity, but. Uh, it's important to understand that the the your roaster that you're buying from or your importer they're doing it based off of a static baseline as opposed to uh, the fluctuating sea market. That's not a good baseline to stick to because the, the, these producers have their own costs. And if you're going down when the sea market goes down, their costs are still up, so they get kind of screwed. So you want you just want as open a communication as possible. You want to have as much understanding as possible when we're looking at the pricing of these coffees. Uh, and so. I, I am a big fan of buying from roasters that are open about that. They could have buy pricing, but if they're open about it, they're at least putting themselves out there for producers to critique them. If producers see what they're paying to other people and they're not paying to them or whatever it might be, that does give, I think, a layer of power um, to, to, to those producers. Um, now I'm not preaching that all coffee should be $50 a pound. Let's not get that. Let's not hear that. But I think that we need to be much, much more critical of people and their buying practices. Um, that now that we have a voice, we have a community of people growing in their interest in their obsession with coffee. We can actually create a change by, you know, saying, well, I'm only going to buy from people that are doing this, that, and the other. And so I think it is a, I think it's a valiant thing. And the thing is, is there are going to be different roasters with different uh, approaches to their margins. And maybe, maybe at roaster A, roaster B have the same coffee and roaster A charges more than roaster B. So you have to consider, is it that they're more money hungry or is one based in Manhattan and one's based in nowhere, uh, Idaho? Not, not dissing on Idaho. I love it. But the prices are going to be way different, right? So, uh, But it's also not an excuse for Roaster A to have a much inflated, much more inflated price uh, because it may not be as different as you might think. They may still have a massive profit margin. So it, it gets we get a little into the weeds here, but I don't want people to think that 
paying more for green should necessarily mean we pay more for our bags of coffee. There, I think that a lot of times roasters have massive margins that the producers aren't able to get. And so I think our focus should definitely be on raising the floor of lower scoring specialty coffees. So instead of instead of being okay with 82s going for really low prices and then people are paying for 88s really high prices, I think we need to raise the floor of those lower scoring co coffees to where it's like they're, they're doing just as much work, right? And you don't know what these producers and their families, their farm has gone through in order to create this. They're probably putting in the same amount of effort. They just might have a worse land geographically where it may not be at the same height altitude. It may not have the same climate as others who may have the farm that's been in their family for 20 years. They got inherited it and they have incredible climate. So they could be completely same amount of labor, but just we're saying this one's better. So it deserves more money. Well, the, this other farm that might have lower quality coffee might not be able to improve because they don't ever get the, the money that they are deserved. Right. Anyway. Okay. I think that is, I think I am done for that rant. Uh, I'll start looking at questions now because I've been talking nonstop for 47 minutes. So let's scroll through some of these. I'm sorry I won't be able to get to all of these, obviously, because I talked way too much. But um, let's see. I'm going to go through these as quickly as possible. Um, let's see. Let's see. Highlands, is there any taste differences between using minerals and different compound forms? For example, I'll, I'll answer this later. This is, I want to do ones that are related to this video right now. Much like service work, once you've done that kind of manual labor, you can never underestimate the amount of labor that goes into it. That is very true. A lot of people have never had to work manual labor a day in their lives. And so it's hard to appreciate the amount of work that goes into that. And we have to consider that what we're paying for is, yes, we're paying for the roaster's cost and their profit margin, but we're also paying for the importation, the exportation. We're paying for all of the workers that had their hands on the coffee cherry and all of like all of that. Like all of that is when we're getting our $3 cup of coffee, right? So when you look at the doses, literally so many hands have touched those beans, especially when you're drinking more high quality coffee, because that's how you're getting high quality is you need to have that human element and more eyes on the beans, more hands on the seeds. Um, let's see. Any thoughts on the coffee cherry pulp tea? Oh, so cascara. So I actually have some cascara. For those watching this on video, I'll kind of show you what it looks like if you've never seen it. This is from the Godshot in Belgium. I'm not sure where they sourced this from, but this is what it looks like for those of you who are watching the video. So it is that cherry. The the it, it, What's interesting is this, as coffee became more and more popular around the world, obviously this was rejected. These, these, this is the, the, the fruit, the skin. If you were to like take the skin off of a cherry, literally it's that dried up. Um, that, that's typically just discarded. If you go to a farm, you'll see they kind of are shooting it out to the side. And there are piles of it that kind of, you know, uh, you can use it in compost or something, I guess. But um, and it has a very loud stench uh, as it sits, especially as it sits there and like it can mold or whatever. But um, what you would have is people would save those because they're selling all their high quality coffee to the people from other countries that are coming in and buying it. So they would drink, uh, they would brew up the leftovers, the, the 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 coverage of the cherry and brew it as tea. And it tastes, it tastes kind of like raisins or, um, you know, some people describe it as like chewing tobacco. If you've ever experienced that, I can vouch for it. I'm Southern. I had chewing tobacco when I was a kid. Um, not that young, 
when I was fishing at like 17, 18 years old. Um, uh, but it has kind of a taste like that. It, it It's tea-like, obviously, because you're steeping it and then you're you're renting it. But this is it's, it's called Cascara. And now there are, over the years, there's been a growing fascination with it. Starbucks picked it up and made it really popular uh, by putting it in different drinks. There's Cascara simple syrup, et cetera. But uh, now you have more high quality cascara. Normally, when it's when it's re rejected, it's not really usable anymore. So you have to you have to um, obtain it in a more controlled manner for it to be usable. So now you have higher and higher quality coffees that are uh, being used for the cascara as well. So you'll have like a gesha cascara and things like that. Is it mucus or mucilage? It's called mucilage, but it's <laughs> it's obviously not mucus like in a nose, but it's a sticky layer that is like. Uh, it, it, remind, it reminds you of mucus. It's like very, very, very sticky honey. Like that's why it's honey process. Um, can you mention co-ferments as well? So co-fermentation for those that aren't aware is when you're literally co-fermenting the coffee with something else, something else that can contribute its own fermentation and can interact with the fermentation of the coffee. So m oftentimes I said that one purposefully, I actually thought about it. Last sip. Oftentimes you have uh, people adding fruit. That's the most common uh, one, like passion fruit, co-ferment, grape co-ferment. They'll literally chop up or lay out so it ferments alongside the coffee, co-fermentation. So there's a big uproar about this. There are people on both sides of the aisles, um, both in the producing regions and in the um, regions that are buying the coffees. You have people in both areas on both sides of the aisle who love it and who hate it, who are indifferent, whatever. I guess there's more than two sides of the aisle. Um, I don't, I don't like the taste of co-ferment coffee personally. I do not feel comfortable commenting on whether it's good or bad um, as far as an objective like this is good, this is bad. I'm not going to be highly opinionated about that because I am not a producer. I am not someone that has found success using that. I am, you know, there are, there are people who say, oh, it's a producer led effort. Uh, so we should let the producer speak. But there are a lot of producers for every one producer I know loves it. There's a producer I know that doesn't like it and thinks it's a downfall in coffee curation. Uh, so there, just to kind of give you an equal view of what's going on, you have people saying co-ferments can, um, people who have less than desirable farm locations that can't grow, grow coffee in the right elements, whatever, um, this can improve their coffee scores by multiple points from like an 82 to an 89, whatever it is. And then they can sell their coffee for a whole lot more money. So you have people on one side arguing that, that it's a great way to improve the quality to get more money in the pockets of people, which begs the question, why aren't we just paying them more anyway? All these roasters and importers are paying shillings for the cheaper coffees or for the lower quality coffees and paying a lot more for the higher quality coffees. Let's maybe not pay $180 a pound for an, an 89 point Gesha and instead pay like $6 a pound for an 84 point. How about we do something like that? But anyway, we won't get into that, I guess. But you have people arguing that side. You have on the other side, people who have fears that if this becomes a, a yearning from the market and the market is only buying those types of coffees, then it's going to force other producers to try this who may not have a background in agronomy and agriculture as far as knowing how to implement this without ruining potentially a whole crop. And the average, for instance, in Ecuador, the person I was talking to today told me the average farm size is only three hectares. That's tiny. You, you think that they're like 60, 80, 100 hectares. No, they're like three hectare average. And that's taking into account 60, 100, 200 hectare farms that are blowing up the average. So really you have loads of, if you looked at the median number, it's probably closer to one, one and a half. 
So you have these small farms and if they take their crop and they experiment with it and it goes wrong, who's going to buy it? You have privileged grocers and importers who uh, can pay a, a, a producer to experiment and they're going to take, they're going to eat it if it goes poorly because they're the ones who pushed for it. But you know, it, it's it's one of those things where on both sides you have valid points. And so I'm not going to take a side because guess what? I am not a producer. I am not someone that has seen a big, um, you know, a, a pay bump because I began using this. I don't know. I just don't know. I, I don't know. All I know is I don't enjoy the taste of them. So I'm not buying them. Uh, and I think that's valid. You don't have to like the taste of everything. Right. Um, so that's my little tangent on co-ferments. Um, let's see. Um is natural processing the best way in regards to environmental footprint uh, versus using water, et cetera, in the washing process? Great question. Christopher Ferran has actually done a great job addressing this. Washing, a lot of people just assume the using and wasting of water is this massive ec uh, ecological environmental issue and that washing is detrimental. In fact, this is not necessarily the case. I'll put down below, uh, if I can find the blog in, in the caption below, um, the show notes, whatever um, the 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 write up friend did on this, uh, talking talking specifically about this. I always like to defer to people who are much smarter than me in certain areas, um, and and this is his bread and butter. Uh, he he travels the world, um, working with the producers, sourcing coffees. That's like that is his mainstay, and he dives deeply into these different um, areas. All right. Uh, which would be better to try and support to increase the livelihood of pickers and others involved in the chain of production? Which would be better to try and support to increase the livelihood of pickers and others involved in the chain of production? Well, like I said, it, all we have right now on breakdown of price is Farmgate. That's the best we can do is knowing what goes to the producer. And then it's up to them how they're divvying out their money with their own costs, with their workers, with their personal costs, everything else. So we like, we don't know what they're going to do with it. And that's, we, we're not big brothering them. Right. And so um, at the current moment, it's just, it's just finding the people. I, I just like to find people who are showcasing their farm gate price. They're not being skeevy about it. And you're seeing that their baseline grows each year. That is what is important. And you can ask these questions. And if people refuse to answer it, guess what? There's probably multiple roasters in your area you can go to. And so I think, but I think a lot of them will be willing to open up as, as long as they're not being skeevy about it, right? You have some skeevy people who don't want to tell you because they don't want you to know they're making a $12 profit. I don't know. It, it, it's just, you know, I want you to be empowered as a consumer to do what you want to do. And if you're wanting to improve uh, th this thing, you need to get into this conversation and we need to start, you know, rattling our fists in order to make changes. In fact, last time I made a video and I talked about this, I had no less than it was like eight roasters reached out to me and told me they were going to start being transparent and paying more for their coffee because they were convicted by uh, the fact that pe people are watching, you know, people are paying attention. Pe now, anyway, we, it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing when people are it's a step in the right direction. Again, I don't think this is in goal. I don't think it's like, oh, all the problems are fixed. Everyone posts Farmgate because, again, we don't know how to compare that. But it is a way of empowering producers, I believe. Uh, it, yeah, okay. Um, I need to get a charging cable for my phone because it is dying. Here's a charging cable. And it is connected to nothing. That's perfect. <laughs> my screen just dimmed because I'm at 5%. All right, well, I'll do five more minutes of questions because I'm going to try to keep this right at an hour. Um, 
Is there a bigger difference in how coffee is grown that affects flavor or does the processing affect the flavor most? According to that, that research paper I alluded to, and I'll try to find that and also include it in the notes if I can. Um, I don't know if it's behind a paywall or not nowadays, but uh, processing would have the most effect, definitely. And in fact, I, I'm, I would... I would 100% agree with that without even, even, normally I don't like to give objective opinions because, um, or like things that I present as objective, that was an objective opinion. What does that mean, Lance? Um, but I would say that's pretty dang objective. Like you can see, you see that. In Brazil, you have farms now that are producing coffee at 500 meters, which is less than ideal when you don't have a crazy process that are now scoring five points above because of alternative processing techniques that they're implementing. So definitely processing is massive. I think you mentioned something like H&W coffee roaster uses lower than 86. I'll say if you had coffee from S&W. I've not had coffee from S&W, but I've heard a lot, a lot about them. Is there a correlation between coffee growing altitude and the taste? Like the coffee growing in higher altitude? Let me read these slowly. People ask me to slow down when I read questions. I'm so used to speed reading them so I can get through more. But I, I for yeah. Is there a correlation between coffee growing altitude and the taste? Like do coffee growing, do coffees growing in higher altitude taste more fruity compared to coffee grown in lower altitude? Yes and no. Yes, higher altitude tends to give a better growing environment, higher density of sugars, more resilient, different things like that because of the height. Um, so that is so like if you're if you're going out and buying a farm and all things are equal, one is at 2,200 meters above sea level, one's at 500, you're going to choose a 2,200 meters above sea level. But does that necessarily mean the same coffee grown on both, the higher one's going to taste more fruity? Absolutely not. A lot of that depends on the processing and on the soil and on uh, different growing practices. Uh, there's a lot of things that go, that go into this. Or is there potentially a higher potential for the coffee threshold, the ceiling at 2200 versus 500? Yes, absolutely. But it's not cut and dry in that way. There's so many other factors that play into this. It's not as simple as that. Though, yes, high altitudes are typically lusted after when you're looking at, at different farms. Um, that was a short drinking game. I'm out of coffee now. Yes, I said oftentimes way too often. Um, how, does, how do roasters check if a batch of roasted coffee tastes good? As consumers, we let coffee rest a few days slash weeks get the best. How would a roaster do this without that resting time? Great question, because this also relates to testing coffee at origin. So typically, you have the, the roasts are done day of. So within eight, in fact, SEA protocol states you should cup between eight and 24 hours course, we throw out loads of statements from SCA because what do they know? They're outdated. Um, I'm a rebel without a cause, baby. I called SCA it out. I don't care. I don't care. Especially now that they have a super automatic espresso machine for one of the world competitions. What is that? Okay, we're done with that. Um, um, but yeah, so roasters will, will cup uh, the day that they're roasting it or the next day, right? So uh, whenever you're cupping it, it's a lot more forgiving and you can kind of taste through the roast. And that's something you have to learn over years of being in the industry of cupping. If you if you cup a lot, it's something you'll kind of be able to see through the roast. You can see that the coffee is going to, um, it, it's tight at the beginning. You'll know it's how it's going to loosen. It, it's, it's hard to describe because it's based off of many, 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 many cuppings. But after one to two days, you're going to get a really good idea of what that coffee will end up like. Um, as far as as far as roast defects, if it's hitting the right um, the right trajectory, things like that. When you're dialing in a roast, roasters will cup them for multiple days, up to a week or so, depending on their protocol, maybe longer. And so they know what it should taste like if it's roasted well on day one. And they can also just uh, compare to that, right? Um, is it possible to grow coffee in non-temperate climates? What about hydroponic coffee? 
Well, it, yes, uh, you have people doing greenhouse stuff. You have different types of um, uh, species that are more resilient depending on the, the environment. You have coffee that is being grown in Southern California. You have, you have coffee that's being grown in London, for instance. That's where the stenophilia is being grown in a greenhouse. And James Hoffman got to taste it in a video he did a few years back. Um but you, yeah, you have coffee that are that are being grown in different areas around the world. That's really that is really interesting. I'm not as educated on the alternative styles of coffees and being grown. Um, that's just not something I've really jumped that far into uh, because a lot of these um, don't taste nearly as good. To be honest with you, I know there's coffee being grown in Denmark, for instance. Um, that was really interesting to see. But anyway, um, let's see. Um, Oh, yeah. So someone said some roasters differentiate between FOB and FOT. What's the difference? So someone did answer it correctly next. FOB is free on board uh, and then uh, FOT is free on truck. Just different shipping methods, but the same meaning. Once it leaves the warehouse, the sale is considered complete to the seller. Yep. So that's right. Josh Jones, I want um, maybe you work in coffee. It sounds like you do. Um, all right. We'll do just one more question. I'm going to skim these real quick to see what I think might be most helpful. Um, if coffee was priced fairly, living wages for the country's grown, sustainability in the whole process from bean to cup, how much do you think coffee should be sold to the consumer on average? This is a great question. And uh, it, it depends. Of course, that's going to be my answer. It depends. If you're looking for only 88, 89, 90 point cups, well, it's going to be a lot more expensive than if you're uh, looking at 83, 84, 85 point cups. I think that very easily, if we could you know, lessen the profit margin of a lot of roasters, because I know a lot of them are much higher than they need to be. If you can, if you can, because for instance, think about this. This was a great point that my friend from Ecuador was pointing out. Is they were like, you know, roasters will post their their um, their uh, uh, farm gate, and they'll be like, yeah, we're doing really well. We paid five fifty a pound, and all these other roasters only paid four twenty five. Uh, we're paying really ethical. You should buy our coffee because we're paying a lot more than everyone else. Um, and what she was saying is, uh, and then that roaster, they they go out that night. They will watch a movie. Then they go to eat dinner. Uh, with friends. The next day they go out to a bar and they, you know, ring up a $60 tab drinking drinks. And they, these are things that a lot of people like in America enjoy doing and they do that. You don't have to be rich to do that. But um, she was like, but producers aren't doing that. Even when you pay them $5.50 a pound, they're still not able to do that. So yeah, you're doing, you're, you're doing better than others, but are you doing everything you can, right? So I do think that there is a part of this that is going to be very difficult, a difficult hurdle to get over. Uh, not only do consumers need to be willing to pay more, and again, I'm not saying, oh, I'm already paying 25 bucks for my 250 grand. I can't pay more than that. Yeah, but that 25 bucks, like with this being 25 or whatever the cost of this ILSA was that I'm holding in my hand, it's probably an 88 point coffee. So you might need to be, uh, you know, it's not bad to drink 84 coffees. You're going to enjoy them too. But there there needs to be like this cup, this bag should maybe be, the, it, the coffee should have maybe been spent more on the coffee and maybe it should be a more expensive bag. And 84s should be what now 86s are being, you know, something like that. So I think you should still be able to buy incredible coffees at $20 or $15 for 250 It just depends on... Um, there's just so many, there's so many effects to it. And you have to have people on board to, to really have the same goal of improving the livelihoods of people all along the chain and not just 
the, 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 the roaster or the importer or whatever it might be. It's a very difficult question to answer, honestly, as you can imagine. I'm trying to skate around it. I do work for a, a roastery. That's why I've not really talked about our roastery is I don't, I don't want to uh, you know, mar this message at all with that. So I do work for roastery and I have a very good idea working in coffee for as long as I have about margins and about what other people are charging and about all of this. And so it is, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult discussion to have, but in the end, coffee should cost more. I'm not saying that the people who can barely afford a $15 bag of 250 grams should be outpriced. I'm not saying that there should always be an option for you, but it should be a higher price of green for the quality of the coffee, right? So if right now you're buying 87, uh, you have an 87 point coffee, you're buying at 15 bucks for a 200 gram bag. That means that that farmer was definitely not paid enough for that coffee. I'm not saying you don't deserve that high of a quality of coffee, but the coffee should cost more money. It just should. It's kind of like I have this street in the back here and it's a $2,000 lever machine. I would love for everyone to get this, but not everyone can get this. And I'm not saying that I'm better than people because I, I bought it, bought it with YouTube funds. I'll do a tax write-off. I just learned about tax write-offs. Sue me. Um, um, not everyone can get a $2,000 lever. And I know that. And and I'm very happy that I, I'm able to have this right now and I'll, I'll use it and I'll make a review on it and all that good stuff. But it's one of those things where it's just the, 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 the world's kind of crappy in general, but, um, and this is getting really too, I, I'm way out of my depth talking about this, honestly, but I do think that, um, I do think that coffee should be more expensive. Um, and I, and mostly, mostly what I'm talking about is the floor being risen, uh, quite a bit actually. So, all right. Uh, is coffee blossom fl flavored jasmine-like? Sort of. It's white flower. It has a very white flower type of... It's hard to describe because the way I describe it is, oh, coffee blossom. But you don't know that unless you've tried it. So jasmine, I think, would be a pretty decent um, signifier. It's obviously going to be a little different than jasmine. It's honestly... Um, Similar also, if you if you have like a honeysuckle, you take the honey part away from it, you can kind of smell the leaf of it, something like that. But anyway, it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to, to talk about. Um, okay, so I think that's I think we're probably um, it, this is actually a decent question. I'll just end with this. Um, oh, I work in logistics. I wish I worked in coffee, but haven't made that jump yet. Hey, Josh Jones, that rocks. Uh, the person who answered the FO2 FOB. That's uh, but that's still that's super helpful. And I, I'm praise you for logistics are very important, especially in coffee. Okay, um, is there a huge difference between same coffee roasted at different roasters? I've bought from my local roaster in Romania the same coffee that was available at Onyx. I'm curious how similar they are. They won't be very similar at all. First off, you have to take into account it might be the same farm, but it likely isn't the same lot. Okay, lot to lot is going to be vastly different. That's what you have to understand is on the same one hectare farm, there are probably multiple lots, little nano lots, whatever it might be. And so from lot to lot, they'll be very different. So you could say you have a, a Jansen Gesha from Kai Jansen's farm in Panama. There's like 200 lots of Geshas. They have lot 187, lot four, lot 46. So, so even though you have that Gesha, they're all way different. One Gesha may score an 86, one might score 93. You, you know, so it could be way different like that. But also, Roasting is going to be vastly different. Roast is, there's so much going on in the roast. You could have a stellar roast, terrible roast, and it's all depending on you. A terrible roast to me might be fantastic to you and vice versa, right? And it's not even that black and white. It's much more of a spectrum. But anyway, um, yes, 
Thank you, Andreas, for the for the idea. Uh, th this was I asked in my Discord, you know, what I should do the video on today, and someone was talking about um, something along this line of seed to cuff, and I said, yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to rant on that. I think it's really important. I hope it was informative uh, to everyone listening, everyone watching. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, make sure to those who haven't yet subscribe to this to you know Lance Hedrick Unfiltered YouTube or podcast. I'm on all the podcast. Um, uh, sites now, all of them, literally. It uh, took a while doing all of that. Uh, and the, it, be, be excited. I'm working with Ugo now. We're starting to plan out um, a little podcast area in my basement so I can actually do uh, proper podcasting every now and then. Um, I'll still, this is the easiest for me, obviously, but every now and then I do want to do some proper podcasts. I know people throughout the industry all over the world, and I'd love to bring them on and do some cool podcasts with them. So uh, yeah, to support, just hit the subscribe, give it a like, give it a five star on whatever you're on, whatever it is. I don't know how to do this. I'm just, I'm just here talking. All right. We're just gabbing. And, um, oftentimes I think to myself that, you know, I love you all. So let's, uh, let's be more conscious, um, consumers. Let's enjoy some good coffee. Um, uh, and you know, I really hope that you brew something tasty today and cheers. This is awkward. There we go. End stream. Love you.